I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're in a mini-series within the book of Romans, focusing in on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, one of the most intriguing and provocative portions of Scripture as there is in the entire Word of God, has immense practical relevance for the believer. Let these words sink in to your minds as we read them and then pray together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to the place of our continuing meditation on these truths, may You protect us from the onslaughts of the evil one who would not want our minds transformed, who would not want us to discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, and who would want us to be fully and completely conformed to the dictates of this world. We pray that You would not let it so, Lord, and that You would speak through my preaching for the glory of Your name and the edification of Your saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have mentioned from Romans 12, 1 and 2 that there are two main outline points to this portion of Scripture. The first, Romans 12, 1, is what I call the exhortative prescription to the Christian life, and that is, based on the mercies of God, we are exhorted in this prescription to present our bodies, that is, our lives, the whole of us, the entirety of everything we are, in three ways. As a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. That is what Paul says we are to do. He exhorts us to do it. He commands us to do it, as it were, based upon all of the things that we can reflect upon whereby God has dispensed His mercy 
so that we might be truly those who are loving God and who are giving of our lives as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice, which is our only reasonable, logical, spiritual worship. It only makes sense since God has given us of His great mercy that we would respond to Him in this way. I also mentioned that in addition to the exhortative prescription of Romans 12.1, we have the ethical practicality of learning how to live as that sacrifice unto God. That ethical practicality is shown to us both negatively and positively. The negative statement by Paul, the prohibition, the injunction, is given to us in the first part of Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. And we said, by way of this ethical practicality, that there are three things in our way to making right or making good this particular principle from the Word of God. And those three things, very familiar to us, and we've covered two of the three of them, and they are the flesh, or as I like to say, remaining sin or indwelling sin. Indwelling sin keeps us from this matter of saying no to the world. In other words, when we say yes to our remaining sin, and we allow it to wreak havoc in our souls, we are in effect doing the very thing that Paul says do not do, and that is conform ourselves to the image of this wicked world. When we allow our sin to be having its way with us, we are in trouble because in so doing, it allows us to do the very thing Paul says, do not do here, and that is to conform our lives, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our responses to the dictates of this world. And we should not allow that to happen. Sin is strong, but we can overpower it. We have the resources at our disposal. And you remember I gave you a couple of categories for which you should look at sin very differently than we often do. And then secondly, I mentioned in addition to the flesh or remaining sin, that there is another very, very formidable foe who also desires to wreak havoc in our lives. In fact, I mentioned that Satan himself, who is that foe, also works with our remaining sin to fan the flames of our wickedness even though redeemed, we have that wickedness still within us called remaining sin, and Satan will stop at nothing to fan the flames of that wickedness so that we will be rendered ineffective in our relationship to Jesus Christ and in our relationship to others. And we spent a couple of messages talking about Satan's wicked devices and God's precious remedies. And that is important for us because Satan is real, as I have said, and he works his work so that we would be rendered totally ineffective for the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom of God. We must know his wily, cunning, daring, abominable deeds, 
His tempting efforts so that we can say no to Satan and yes to God. And we have looked at that in a good level of detail. Not enough, of course, for all that the Word of God teaches us, but enough at least to tell us that Satan is around. He's alive. He's a roaring lion. And he seeks those whom he may devour. But there's one other in this unholy trilogy of things that are against us. And we've alluded to it, of course, with regard to remaining sin and also with regard to Satan himself and his temptations. And that is, maybe in the most general category of the three, the concept of the world. The world itself. And I want to talk about that this morning. I want us to see five means for overcoming the evil of this world. Five means at our disposal to overcoming the world and its evil. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to the first one, just to the latter part of Romans chapter 12. We're going to get to this shortly, but I want you to see the first of these five means of overcoming the evil of this world. And we'll talk a little bit more about what I mean regarding the world in a moment. But I want you to see just from chapter 12, and we'll get to it in due season, regarding the overcoming of this evil world. Look at chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, because Paul doesn't necessarily define or describe what evil he's referring to, we could say that in a generic sense, he's simply talking about general evil. And that really fits into the category of what I'm describing today, and that is overcoming the world. The world is the evil system, the cosmos that attempts to perpetrate all kinds of wickedness against believers. I mentioned to you last time that Satan is the god of this world, little g god. He is the prince of the power of the, the air. First John says that he has the whole world in his lap. He's the wicked one. He controls the evil of this world. And so therefore, when we talk about the general sense of evil, we're talking about the world's wicked system of which Satan is head and of which demons themselves are doing his bidding and for which we ultimately, all of us, even as Christians, must continually fight against. And when Paul comes here to the end of Romans 12... He will give us, I believe, four steps, four steps from this one, this one passage. And I believe that it is so good for us to study and to know so that we might overcome 
this world. And so this particular point, the first of five, is generally said to be this. Overcome evil with good. That's the first of those five means. Overcome evil with good. If you wrapped it all up and put a bow on it, it would be this principle. The first means whereby we can overcome the world is to overcome this evil world by and with good. Doing good. Doing good things by good behavior. And as I said, there are four steps here in this text. We'll go over them in more detail, much more detail when we come to it. But look at it from verse 17. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, this is what we might say is the reactive response to evil that is perpetrated against you. He says, does Paul, do not retaliate with evil, but respect what is right, what is righteous. When evil perpetrates its demonic activity toward you, respond with what is right. Don't respond evil for evil. Verse 18, if it is possible, Paul says, seek to pursue men All men with peace. Now that's difficult. Especially when there are those around us who aren't committed to our peace. They're committed to our destruction. And Satan, as the head of the destruction business, will do all that he can to destroy us. And yet Paul is saying, even in the midst of the evil cosmos of this age, do not overcome this evil of the world by doing evil, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, now that's a great qualifier there, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Seek to pursue peace with all men, that's his point. And then look at verses 19 and 20. This is an amazing passage. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, to the contrary, instead of taking vengeance on yourself for these evil perpetrators, if your enemy, that's clearly someone who's against you, if they're hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And somebody immediately is going to say, wait a minute, wait right there. You mean to tell me that as a Christian, when evil is perpetrated against me, I'm supposed to do good to those kinds of people when they're committed to all kinds of things against me? And as I jokingly said before, normally we read the passage, verse 19, in some kind of way like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is, is, it is written, Vengeance is Lance's. I will repay, says me. Fill in your name there. Because often, what we try to do is we try to do what this passage says, but then we say, but they've hurt me too deeply. This is too much for me to bear. And if we were to quote 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but wait a minute, God says... He's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. It's not beyond your ability to bear. And someone's going to say, oh, yes, it is. You, you don't know how hurt I've been. You don't know how much this is bugging me. You don't know 
How difficult this is. You've not been in my situation. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common, or literally, but such as is human. Nobody can say, no one, no person in the entire universe could say, but there is this, there is this one situation, and I'm the candidate, it's happened to me, that nobody else has ever gone through in the history of the world, and therefore I'm justified in reacting evilly against this person who's perpetrated this evil against me. God says no. No one should ever rightly say, no one can do that. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says that person says, we must leave it, it's a good translation, we must leave it, that is the avenging to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Not Lance, not anybody else. And he says, if that weren't enough for us to say, I'm choking here, Lord, I'm choking on this truth, tilt, overload, He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me that I'm actually supposed to overcome evil, the very evil that's perpetrated against me, that's hurting me so deeply, with good? With a cup of cool water? With a nicely made meal? He says, yes, for in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? Well, you come back when we go through that text, and I'll tell you what that means. That's a very, very important word. In other words, this principle in verses 19 and 20 is never try to exact your own vengeance, but leave any necessary revenge to God himself. You, however, respond with kindness and good deeds toward everyone. It's easy to do that to your friends. It's more difficult to do that to your enemies. But do it nonetheless. That's what he's saying. And look at verse 21. This is more the proactive to the reactive of verse 17. Do not be overcome by evil, but proactively overcome evil with good. And that's a succinct sentence that gives us that first means whereby we can come overcome the evil of the world. And that is, you overcome the evil, the wickedness of this world by doing good. By being good. You say, well, how do I practically do that? I want to show you a remarkable passage in 1 Samuel from the life of King David, who didn't always, of course, do this, but this is a great example of when he did. 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is an amazing Amazing response of David, who, as you know, was in the very throes of being pursued by the evil Saul, King Saul, all of the evil of his ways. And David had the opportunity, even though Saul was pursuing him, wanting to kill him. You know the story. And David and his men, according to chapter 24, verse 3, were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day, verse 4, of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as, that, as it shall seem good to you. Well, what did David do? Well, Saul is actually in the cave 
at the same time. And he went in there to do something that you can read about in verse 3 that I shall not mention. And when David was in the cave in the innermost part, while Saul was occupied, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. You see the scene? David's mighty men are saying, David, today's the day. This is the day that you are being delivered. The enemy is being delivered right into your hands. This is it. This is the moment. It's almost like in our contemporary version when we heard on that Sunday morning that Saddam Hussein, when they lifted up that hole in the ground, there he sat like a little mole. And don't you know that there were some army personnel right at that moment who were thinking, being tempted to say to themselves, let's finish the job right now. But they couldn't because justice had to be done. Trials had to occur, however challenging those trials may have been. This is a similar scenario. Wicked Saul and David is struck in his heart. And he said to his men, can't do it. And don't you know his men were saying, David, or King David, are you crazy? We've got him right where we want him. And afterward, verse 8, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord the King. And Saul looked behind him and David bowed his, with his face to the earth and paid homage. This guy who's trying to kill him, take his life. Notice verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good. Isn't that Romans 12? Overcoming evil with good. Whereas I have repaid you with evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go? Will he let him go away safe? In other words, Saul is sort of like David's mighty men saying, wait a second. What's wrong with this picture? You're in the cave. You're indisposed. The opportunity is there. God has already said David's going to be on the throne. Just do the job. Get it over with. Respond to the one who's perpetrating evil, who wants your life, by taking their life. Verse 20. And now I know. Or back up to the latter part of verse 19. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And an amazing statement. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. 
Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, this is a great passage that buttresses Romans 12, 17 to 21. It's a great passage because when David had the opportunity He could have ended Saul's life right then and there, but he didn't because he believed that the Lord wanted him to do good to Saul so that Saul, maybe even this recorded in Scripture as an opportunity for Saul to yet ultimately repent. See the point? You don't want to do that kind of evil against those who are perpetrating evil against you because you want to kill them with kindness. You want to do good things. You want to see them ultimately repent of their evil. You don't want to exact vengeance upon people because they've hurt you. The whole point is, be used of God as an instrument to show them the righteousness of God, the kindness of God, the opportunity for the kindness of God to bring them to repentance. This is, this is all over the Scripture. Look at Galatians chapter 6. This is, an, this is an amazing theme in the Word of God, this doing of good to those who perpetrate evil. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, that's all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Every one of us should be endeavoring to do good to all men, especially to those who are fellow believers. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. This gets right down to these who are perpetrating this evil against us, this evil world that we live in, especially because of our faith. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's clearly a reference to somebody who's being persecuted because they're a believer, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What? Blessed? Yes. Because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, my friends, you overcome the evil of this world by doing good. That is the number one means for overcoming the evil of this world. This is even true in our Old Testament, not just by way of an example like I showed you from David's life, but also in Psalm 37. Psalm 37 tells us again that this is a principle that we must hold on to while we're being attacked. Psalm 37, verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good. Why? So shall you dwell forever. The principle of the, of the Word of God is to do what is right and God will reward you in some way and in some how. 
First Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Just like Galatians says. Do good to everyone, including the household of faith. That's what we're to do. That's what we're all about as believers. Unbelievers, they want to exact vengeance on each other. They want to get at each other. They want their pound of flesh. We say no as believers. We want to overcome evil with good. Here's the second means. The second means to overcome the world, the evil of this world, is to overcome evil by being innocent toward its inner workings. Overcome evil by being innocent toward its inner workings. In other words, don't have an experiential free-for-all with sin, with the world, with the devil. Don't constantly be getting so close to the edge of the world's system of what the world wants to parlay especially for believers, so that they will fall because that's the world's number one agenda, whether they realize it or not. Don't get so close. Don't see how close you can get to the world without getting burned by the world. Because the closer you get to the world, the less resistant you'll be to it. That's a principle from God's Word. The closer you get to the world the less resistant you'll be to it. This uh, came through to me just yesterday when I picked up my copy of Christianity Today. And I noticed in this particular issue, there was in the back an opportunity to hear a Q&A from Patricia Heaton, who is the television wife of Ray Romano in that long-standing, now-canceled sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond, for which I know everybody loves that show. And Patricia Heaton, who I'm sure is probably a sweet gal, said in this interview with Stan Guthrie in just this latest issue of CT, buttressing the very point I was making, he he said to her years ago, a lot of Christians just shunned Hollywood and wanted to get her reaction. She said, quote, now we're paying the price, that is for Christians to shun Hollywood. Now we're paying the price. From the beginning of church history, music, writing, literature, and the greatest works of art all came from the church. To change the culture and make it a force for good, you have to be in it and be a part of it. So far, so good. And then she says, and you have to be more excellent than anyone else. It's not that you have to embrace everything that comes out. This are her words, not mine. There's a lot of crap out there. But you need to be able to have an intellectual discussion of why something is not portraying the truth of our human condition. So, with the exception, of course, of that one word, which we probably shouldn't use because it's vulgar, she's basically on target. Except, notice the answer to another question that he asked. How does your faith influence your choice of projects? How do you choose in the projects that you undertake as an actress? This is what she said. For the serious projects, you want to tell the truth. Sometimes people think that if you're a Christian, you can't do a part that has any nudity or obscenities. Those things, in and of themselves, are not problematic. It's the way they are portrayed. Now just think about that statement. Is there ever an artfully 
and favorably presentation of obscenities? Is there an ethically right way to be obscene? Is there a favorably and judiciously and godly way of being nude on a screen? Folks, that's a a, a prime example of getting so close to the world's edge, if not in it, that you're going to be burned by it. There's no way to present your nude body on a television screen or a movie screen and possibly think that that's going to minister to the world the love of Jesus Christ? That's not going to do that. You've got to be innocent toward the inner workings of the world. And what are some of the inner workings of the world? Well, with regard to Hollywood itself, they can't just let some films be PG, so they have to throw in obscenities, or they have to throw in a little nudity so that it would get a higher rating so that more people would go to it. Now, how can you playfully, how can you favorably, how could you ethically involve yourself as a Christian in such behavior? You have to overcome evil by being innocent toward its inner workings. In fact, look in the book of Romans at chapter 16, verse 19. You want a prescription? If Patricia Heaton wants an answer to the question that she was asked, here's a great verse to quote. Romans 16:19. For your obedience, Paul says to the Roman believers, is known to all, which is a great thing, great testimony, so that I rejoice over you. But here's what he says. You're doing great, but here I want you to excel excel still more. But I want you to be wise as to what is good. In other words, I want you to be experientially involved in what is good and innocent, the lack of experience as to what is what? Evil. That's a tremendous principle. Just tell yourself whenever you are fraught with decision making regarding something that the world is tempting you to do and just ask yourself the question, is this an opportunity for me to be wise to that which is good and innocent to that which is evil? That's not always an easy question. It's not always cut and dried. You may not always find a chapter and verse, but this is a verse that might help you along the path. Turn also to Proverbs 16. This may also help you overcome evil by being innocent toward its inner workings. Proverbs chapter 16. We're just about there in Proverbs 16, and we're going to talk about this on our next opportunity. Proverbs 16, verse 17. This is great. I love this. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way does what? Preserves his life. You want to preserve your life? You want to make good choices? Guard your way. And how do you do that? The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Remember when we went through Proverbs chapter 1 and Solomon was telling his sons, Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For there are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And he says very clearly, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If the media or whoever else, friends, unbelievers, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, 
Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall all find precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We will all have one purse. He says, my son, can you hear the pathos in his voice? My son, do not walk in the way with them. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Verse 19, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Verse 32, for the simple, that is the unbeliever, the one who's not thinking through the spiritual implications of life, for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But, verse 33, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. I know it's hard. But look at Philippians 4.8. Whatever is lovely and right and of good reputation, dwell on those things in your mind. Don't buy in to the stuff of the world. Don't buy into their schemes they're, they're all about plying Satan's trades. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you've learned it. It's able to give you the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. Overcome evil in this world, my beloved, by not understanding experientially all of its inner workings. You go that far, you go that far into the darkness, you're not going to come out unscathed. You will be affected by it. Second Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 also gives us a word on this, a wonderful word. 2 Peter chapter 2, the middle of verse 19. It's talking about false teachers. And he says, For whatever overcomes a person, this is a general principle of the Word of God, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. He even says if you're overcome by it to such a degree like false teachers are, according to verse 20, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Don't even go there. Say no to it. There's a third means. And that third means is overcoming evil by an unwavering reliance upon Holy Scripture. Overcome evil by an unwavering reliance Upon Holy Scripture. I mean, I had to add this, didn't I? Because I've said overcome evil with good, good deeds, righteous behavior. You overcome evil by not being aware of its inner workings so as to be tainted by it, overcome by it. And then at this point, you're like me, you're saying, but what are my resources? How can I do this? You do it a based upon your reliance, your complete unwavering reliance upon Holy Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
Right in our own text, and we'll be getting to this particular phrase in due time, Romans 12.2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And you do that, of course, by the will of God, which expresses the Word of God, that by testing you would discern what is the will of God. That 1 Thessalonians 5 passage that I mentioned to you, that tells us also what we are to do and how we are to respond. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. I believe that to be another way of talking about the Word of God. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every kind of evil. And how do we do that? Verse 27, this is what he told the Thessalonians. I put you under oath before the Lord. That's that's an amazing statement. I consign you to an oath that you must do something. And what is it? Before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Have this Word of God read. This is the Word of God. And you read it and what does it say? Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every kind of evil. How do you do that? By knowing the Word of God. By knowing it like the back of your hand. 1 John chapter 2. Same idea. 1 John chapter 2. You remember when 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 talks about this concept of the world? And it tells us very clearly what the world is. Verse 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions or pride of life, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And where where is that will of God revealed? It's revealed in the Word of God. Even back up to verse 12. He's saying, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. How? Because you know the Father. Because, young men, verse 14, you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You want to overcome the world? Have the Word of God strongly abiding in you. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, to that we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, how do I know in what ways Christ's obedience is demanded of me? Know the Word of God. Have an unwavering reliance upon it. When you are beset with all of these fiery darts from the evil one and you're trying to to actually evade those fiery darts, how might you do it? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that you do it because you have the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. You've got all this... This full armor, and every bit of it is a defensive position. You've got the breastplate of righteousness. You've got the loins of truth. You have the feet shod with the good news of the gospel of peace. You have all of those things and more. But he says the offensive weapon is the machaira, the sword, the dagger, with which in close, close combat, hand-to-hand combat, you're able with that machaira, that sword, to do damage to the evil world. My friends, if you are not 
availing yourself of the word of the living God in a regular, systematic, habitual way, how do you think you're going to overcome the evil of this world? How do you think you're going to do that? You you are opening yourself up. If you don't have the Word of God continually in your heart and your mind, like Paul told the Colossians, to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in them richly, how are you going to be able to fight against the wiles of the devil, against your own remaining sin, and against the world and all its environs if you do not make yourself open to the Word of God on a regular basis? You can't. You won't. You'll fall to it. And I tell you, in this series that I've been presenting to you, I have never in my entire Christian life of 25 plus years ever seen the attacks of Satan upon my life and my family as I've seen it right now. Why? Because Satan doesn't want me to tell you what I'm telling you. He wants me to compromise the message. He wants me to slip and fall to be tripped up so that I am not presenting to you the Word of God and its message. But by the power of God, through the grace of God, I will not let Him prevail. Because the Word of God is too important for that. The ministry of the Gospel is too important for that. The possession of souls for the kingdom is is too important for that. It's too important for us to be overcome by the world. And so, when I am not adequate in and of myself, which I'm not, I must cling to the Word of God. I must hold it forth in a fast and considerate way so that I'm arming myself to go against the very wiles of the devil, not in my own strength, but in the strength of His might through the power of His Word, empowered by His Holy Spirit. And I can't do that if I'm not opening up my Bible and reading of its riches. Number four. The fourth means. And we're going real fast. Overcoming evil. How do you do it? You do it by keeping yourself under the control of the Holy Spirit. I just said it. You keep yourself empowered, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Back in 1 John chapter 4, that familiar passage Verse 4, little children, you are from God, and I love this, and have overcome them. What? Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verse 3, what kind of spirit is that? That's the spirit of the Antichrist, which I'm telling you, it was coming, and now I'm telling you, it's in the world already. But you, you who are from God, you've overcome them. For he who is in you, that's the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world. What's what's John saying? Know intimately the Holy Spirit. You overcome the world by knowing the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So you know the Holy Spirit, 1 John 4, 4. You walk by the dictates of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 16. Proverbs 15, verses 1 to 4. A soft answer turns away wrath. And if you read the last part of that, verses 1 to 4, and even into chapter 16, verse 7, it's talking about being pleasing to the Lord. And when you're pleasing to the Lord, Proverbs 16, 7 says, you'll even make your enemies to be at peace with you. You say, what is that? Pleasing the Spirit. 
trusting the Spirit, relying on the Spirit. Boy, what a powerful weaponry for the believer that you have a conscience that's sensitive to the Word of God, that you have the powerful Word of God to give you instruction for which you have an unwavering reliance upon it, and you have the empowerment of the Spirit of God. You understand how powerful that is? If you're not relying on it, if you're not availing yourself of it, no wonder you're compromising with regard to the world. No wonder. I thought about that this morning, and I thought about people who don't regularly, habitually come into the place of worship. Not just talking about someone who comes twice a month. I'm talking about someone who comes every single time the doors open, whether it's here at the Bible church or not. Wherever you go, you're always to be in worship on the Lord's day. And I think about people who then come and they say, I'm struggling spiritually. And is it not sometimes as a direct result of their not availing themselves of worship on a regular basis? The the tremendous praise that we, we experienced earlier on with the singing of those hymns and choruses, that is vital to my spiritual life. I can't get on without it. I can't be without God's people. I need the people of God. I need the Word of God. I need the Spirit of God. And fifth and finally, I overcome evil with a vibrant, robust faith. I had to say that, right? You have to believe. You have to believe God and what He says about your Christian life and how to overcome evil. You're in 1 John chapter 4. Look at chapter 5. This may be the ultimate passage of all passages in the Word of God about this overcoming the world concept. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes, mark that, believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, you can find out if you've been born of God already through the reality that God has given you faith and repentance in this regeneration. And this regeneration results in the believing. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. That goes back to the Word of God again. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. That's obedience. And His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And then this ultimate statement, and this is the victory. It's already there. I just need to walk in it. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. You would think He'd say, God, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, His death on the cross... All those things are true, but here's what he says. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. You're not going to overcome this wicked world if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ and that God will protect you from this evil generation. You won't if you don't believe that. And I'm not just talking about some initial belief and then you slip and slide into the delusion of unbelief. Verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it say in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11? That those 
who are able to withstand the accusations of Satan who accuses the brethren day and night, it says that they overcame by the word of their testimony. And what was the word of their testimony? That Jesus Christ is alive. That Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. You look at John chapter 14, verses 10 to 14. You look at John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. And you look at John chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, and verses 20 to 33. And you will find in that power-packed set of three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, which is Jesus Christ's instruction to His very own apostles, His disciples, He tells them over and over and over again, this is the way to overcome the world, and it is your believing in Me. And He even says to them in chapter 16, This is what I'm telling you. You believe in me and believe that I myself have overcome the world. And if you believe in me, you shall overcome the world as well. It's faith. You're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, Matthew 5. Believe that God will reward you for your faithfulness. And I can't resist. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. The the great prelude to the hall of faith in chapter 11. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This is what the world's going to throw at us, folks. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's heaven. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, or another word for faith, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We're not like those, verse 39, who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now you know why he says in chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's why he says in verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please Him, that is God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And then he just goes by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And I love what verse 25 says of chapter 11. Moses, by faith, he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's what the world will give you. Fleeting pleasures. It's a bait and switch. Don't fall for it. Verse 40 says God has provided something better for us. He's provided something better for us. And that's why all of those people by faith, chapter 12, verse 1, we are surrounded by them. These people who believe God by faith, they're such a great cloud of witnesses so that we would lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance. That's the faith test, the race that is set before us. We're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's, that's how you overcome the world. You believe God. You believe what He says. You believe His Word, His Word of promise. In this you rejoice, Peter says, 1 Peter 1, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials and the world's temptations, my friends, they are trials galore so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, here's what your faith will produce, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. That's faith. We haven't seen Jesus Christ. It would be far easier for people to say, well, just show me the person of Christ. Show me the nail scars in His hands. Show me Christ and I'll believe. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. That's faith. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. You know what the outcome of your faith is? The salvation of your souls. Folks, we haven't seen the risen Christ like the apostles were privileged to see. But we nevertheless have the full and complete revelation of God so that even though we haven't seen Him, we love Him. And even though we do not see Him now, we believe in Him. This is, this is a vital teaching on overcoming the world. I was reading in Joel Beakey's excellent book, just out. It's wonderful to be friends of people who send you their books for free. Overcoming the World, Grace to Win the Daily Battle. I close with this great illustration. He says, consider an example of the story of a man who once found a cocoon of the emperor moth and took it home to watch it emerge. One day a small opening appeared. For several hours the moth struggled but couldn't seem to force its body past a certain point. Deciding something was wrong, the man took scissors and snipped the remaining bit of cocoon. The moth emerged easily its body large and swollen, the wings small and shriveled. The man expected that in a few hours the wings of the moth would unfurl in their natural beauty, but they did not. The moth spent its life dragging around a swollen body and shriveled wings. Joel Beakey says, The struggle and pain necessary to pass through the tiny opening of the cocoon are God's way of forcing fluid from the body of a moth into the wings. The merciful snip of the scissors was in reality most cruel. Likewise, the Christian life is a struggle. It demands entrance through a narrow gate and a daily walk along a narrow path. The Christian way is not a middle way between extremes, but a narrow way between precipices. It involves living by faith through self-denial, waging a holy war in the midst of a hostile world. And what a war it is, for the world doesn't fight fairly or clearly, doesn't agree to ceasefires, 
and doesn't sign peace treaties. It's a wicked world. But you can overcome it by these five means, and I pray that you will. Let's bow together. Father, we are utterly powerless to fight against this world if it were not for Your regenerating power. Granting to us, by Your regeneration, faith and repentance so that we would have a conscience that is alive and sensitive to what is being thrown at us. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit. And thank You for the opportunity of continuing belief so that we can monitor our own remaining sin, the wiles of Satan, through Your precious remedies and overcoming the evil system of this world. Oh Lord, I pray for those who might be here who in fact are losing the battle not because they don't know these things and because they're struggling to apply them, but because they don't know Christ at all. I pray that You would bring into the prayer room those whom You have destined for an eternity of release from the battle to be with You forever. And Lord, for us, for believers who have struggled, I pray for myself and for this precious flock that You would bring all of us to greater clarity and greater avail of Your matchless power through Your marvelous Word intended for us to win this daily battle with for and by grace. May it be so, Father, so that Jesus Christ would be preeminent in all things. In His name we pray. Amen.